with the European Federation of Internal Medicine. The aim of this podcast is to work on our diagnostic skills and those clinical conundrums that we often face in our day-to-day clinical practice. Each episode we will discuss cases and we will be joined by specialists from all over the world. This week I am very pleased to be joined by... Hi, my name's Ben Lovell. I'm a consultant in acute medicine in London um, and also uh, uh, honorary associate professor of medical education and a writer sometimes on medical textbooks. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Um, And I keep forgetting to introduce myself, but I'm Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician and a general physician in the UK. So, Ben, you've brought a case today. So I've got my pen and paper ready. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to go ahead. Okay, this is a patient I saw uh, on the medical take who I admitted to the acute medicine unit, but it's a few years ago now, but it's one that's always stuck with me because I really enjoy the teaching that comes from it. So you have a 56 year old man and he comes to hospital because he collapsed at home and his wife says he was unresponsive for two minutes and she noted that his eyes sort of glazed over and rolled back a little bit um, and he was non-communicative and non-responsive but no other features and after two minutes he sort of woke up and started talking again but he's not been his normal self ever since she says he's he seems confused and withdrawn and not his usual self and that's why he's come into hospital and when you see him he certainly is very distractible and very vague Um, And he's never had an episode like this before. There were no warning signs, no preceding symptoms. Um, And on direct questioning, he did not shake or jerk or have any epileptiform movements. He did not lose control of his bladder or his bowels. He did not bite his tongue. Um, And it wasn't postural. It wasn't like he stood up or been standing for a long time. He was sitting down at the table when it happened. Um, and that's your, your, the history of this presentation, really. And looking at his past medical histories, he's 56. He has hypertension, for which he takes amlodipine. He also takes omeprazole for a bit of uh, gastro-reflux uh, disease. Um, he had TB as a young man back in India. He's an Indian gentleman who now lives in the UK, which, as far as they were all concerned, was completely cleared up with treatment. And the other thing in his past medical history is that he has SIADH, Syndrome of Inappropriate ADH Secretion. And this has been thoroughly worked up in an outpatient endocrinology clinic with the CT of his chest and an MRI of his head, and they could not find any cause. So he was told just to be careful and limit his fluid intake, but he was not any specific medication for this. He never smoked, never drunk alcohol in his life. So what do you think? First impressions. (laughs) First impressions are, I I find this type of presentation very challenging. Um, The sort of unresponsive for a couple of minutes, because it's often the the collateral history from the person who watched it, it's very variable. And sometimes it'd be good to get a video to actually see what happened. Mm. So a 56-year-old gentleman, known hypertensive, who was gone for two minutes and since that episode he's confused and withdrawn 
Mm, Is that confusion and withdrawing, is it fluctuating or has it been persistent for the last 48 hours? It's persistent. In fact, when he was initially clocked in, his GCS was recorded as 14 out of 15 because he lost a point for verbal communication because they couldn't quite make sense of it. When I saw him, I could understand him very clearly, but on an uh, abbreviated mental test score, just testing recall and orientation, he only scored three out of 10. So he was certainly Mm. very confused. And this is the first time this episode has ever happened to him. Correct. So we've got acute confusion. We've got an acute confusional state. Um, Delirium, Um, which can sometimes fluctuate um, and you can get moments of lucidity, moments of confusion. Um, hmm. So initially, when you mentioned it, I thought, okay, could he have had some form of cerebellar event? Could he have had a cerebral event? Could he have had a stroke? Mm-hmm. Could he have had transient global amnesia? Mm-hmm. Because he's hypertensive. So he's at risk of having an ischemic event. But you don't tend to be confused um, after an infarction. or a, You can sometimes be after global amnesia. Um, then you mentioned SAADH which can also affect your sodium levels. PPI, which I thought was a little bit unusual, given the fact that PPI is going to affect your sodium levels. And there's been no cause found for the SAIDH, so I'll be concerned about your sodium levels. I'd want to check those. Um, Infection-wise, has he got some form of cerebral infection? Um, Meningitis, encephalitis, has he got fever? Is there anything on examination that would concern you? Um, has he had any trauma? Collapse? Did he bang his head? Has he got a subdural hemorrhage? Potentially, I'd want to be looking at that. Um, that's you said he didn't drink. He said he didn't drink uh, or smoke or take any medication. Did he take any medication from over the counter that we know no, of? No, none. No, okay. And he wasn't in any medications from board or internet sometimes people do get no not that we could fathom out no no okay hmm. yeah so you've covered a neurological a metabolic and infective yeah. and uh, a traumatic uh, etiology for his presentation yeah. um he had uh, some tests done. well first of all i'll tell you his examination so we examined okay. and we noticed that he had globally increased tone in all four limbs um, tending towards rigidity but his power when we could make him follow commands was normal and his reflexes were normal and his plantars both went down and his sensation and his cranial nerves were normal. So the only finding we could see was just this global uh, increased tone of his arms and his legs. And he was very vague and very distractible. So he, he struggled to follow conversations and he would repeat himself a couple of times and he would lose interest and sort of glaze over and look away. Um, but there was no, it didn't point towards one specific neurological lesion at that point. He came in through ED. Anyone who comes in through ED gets a CT scan of their brain and his was normal. So there was no subdural hemorrhage or spontaneous subarachnoid or anything like this. And his blood tests were normal except for one and that his sodium was 121. Okay. 
So you did say that this gentleman has SAADH. Here's a sodium of 121 normal for him. Or no. was this? An, no. So this it, was an acute drop in sodium. His line was about 130. Okay, so an acute sodium drop. Okay. What about his calcium? Calcium was normal. Normal. Magnesium was normal. Renal function was normal. Okay. And we repeated his plasma and urinary osmolalities and urinary sodium. And it was all in keeping with SIADH. And his wife then said he did struggle to stick to his fluid restriction, which was a litre a day, which is hard to do for your entire life. Mm. And he liked mm. tea, and she thought maybe he'd been not quite adhering to that. So at that point, we thought, OK, SIADH with a bit of a PPI and meprazole thrown in, has pushed his sodium down. He's not keeping to his fluid restriction. And we called it a delirium secondary to sort of acute or, or subacute hyponatremia. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Um, so I just wondered what his thyroid function was. His thyroid function was normal. And we did a, a cortisol, a random cortisol, and that was normal as well. Someone had a very clever idea of, is he um, Addisonian, previous TB? Sometimes you get deposits in your adrenals. Could he have, uh, could he have sort of TB adrenalitis or, or old scarring? But no, his cortisol was normal. And he's, and he's hypertonic as well, you mentioned, didn't you, in all four limbs? Yes, hy hy hypertonic in his limbs and hypotonic in his blood. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so your diagnosis then was SAADH being exacerbated by PPI usage. Yeah, so we admitted him, obviously, and we decided yeah. to um, give him some very, his, his fluid status we thought was slightly uh, underfilled. So we decided to give him a little bit of slow, normal saline, and we and over the next uh, 24 hours, his sodium did slowly correct quite nicely. And it went from 121 to 126 the next day and then to 129, which is really back at his baseline. However, mm -hmm. he got worse. Um, and on the, the next day, so we'll call that day two, his GCS fell to 12 out of 15. Gosh. And we noticed that he persisted in being very rigid. And on the day after that, his GCS fell to nine. Um, and he had this very strange phenomenon in that he, whatever you position you put his limbs into, he would just hold that position. So I saw him in the morning and I took his pulse, took his wrist out to take his radial pulse. And then I went back about 40 minutes later and he was still lying in bed with his arms stretched out where I'd left it. So he had this strange sort of waxy catatonia where he can move his limbs around. And it was on day two where we started to get really concerned because the sodium has corrected. Why had his cognitive status and his neurology not corrected? Um, and at that point, we decided to go back to what you mentioned, which was, could this be a central nervous system infection? And we started a cyclovir for potential encephalitis. And we decided mm -hmm. to do a lumbar puncture. But the lumbar puncture results, the CSF, came back completely normal. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. This we is a, yeah. <laughs> we were stuck as well, because what we felt like, this was a young, 56, is young, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're watching a young guy getting sicker and sicker in front of our eyes with no explanation for it, which is intellectually frustrating, but on a human level, quite frightening. Yes, absolutely. His family were saying, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? And we were saying, we're not sure. Yeah. And that's very hard for them to hear, but quite hard for us to say as well. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? You have to have the answer, really. And people, you know, they deserve to know why somebody is getting worse. I, yeah, I, 
I find it very difficult when we don't know the answer to whatever's going on and we can't explain it to the patients and we can't explain it to the relatives and friends and also other people who are working on the world with us because sometimes it feels like we should know the answer to everything and when we don't it's like well, why don't they know the answer um and it's it's challenging because it's how open and honest with you with with the patient are you you know and just saying actually I don't know what's going on yeah um that is hard it's a hard pill I think for us to swallow as clinicians to admit that we haven't got a clue what's going on especially in in such acuity and in such severity mm. of illness on day three of his admission his GCS was fluctuating between nine and eleven and uh his lactate had risen to twelve uh and his CK was four thousand and we were really none the wiser. We assumed the CK was 4,000 because he'd been rigid. He'd been hypertonic in his muscles for a good three or four days. And he was starting to have a bit of rhabdomyolysis, but we couldn't explain why his lactate was up, why his GCS was down. And it was on day three of his admission that we noticed that he had very, very subtle um, movements. When he spoke, he would just have this bizarre repetition of ideas, his perseveration of ideas, and he couldn't really follow a coherent conversation. But he had these sort of very, very subtle movements of um, a kind of flickering in the small muscles around his eye and a flickering of the small muscles in his hand. And there was a suggestion of whether he had some sort of lip smacking or lip, repetitive lip motions. Mm. Okay. Which looked a bit like automatisms. And he has, he, does he have a past psychiatric history at all? None at all. Okay, so he hadn't been on antipsychotic medication. No. So he was a dystonic. He had these sort of semi-repetitive lip smacking, these kind of fibrillating small muscle movements of his, uh, of his uh, hands and his eyes. And this is the point where we did the test that made the diagnosis. And we requested to have a bedside EEG. EG. Mm. Yeah. And it was an absolutely did, astonishing thing to see. Did he have, I'm just going to go for it now. Go did he it. have CJD? He didn't. No, that would be amazing. Oh, that was... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Gosh, I'd be horrified if I'd done a lumbar puncture on someone who then had CJD. I'd be I know, yeah, sorry. That was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Burned, burned the hospital down and everything in it. Yeah, oh, God. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that was a bit. Nothing yeah. as exciting as that, but we, uh, the neurophysiology consultant came up and did the EEG uh, yeah. and he said, and the report was absolutely amazing, and he said, um, on the EEG report, there is continuous pathological delta activity in keeping with ongoing status epilepticus. During Gosh. the recording, I administered one, uh, 0.5 milligrams of intravenous midazolam at which point the abnormal EEG activity terminated, the patient sat up, opened his eyes and started talking and answering questions. Wow. It was absolute proof. And that patient has spent three days in status epilepticus, in non-convulsive status epilepticus. And that's what the final diagnosis was. Non-convulsive state, complex partial status epilepticus, secondary to his hyponatremia, lowering his seizure threshold. Wow. What do you think of that? Wow. I am astonished. 
um, that is not something I would have thought about. It is obviously something I will think about now. Huge number of learning points there. Huge number. What really um, got me was that the fact that I'd never heard of it before, non-convulsive. So I thought stage lepticus was quite a violent and dramatic thing. But I, I then learned that you can get complete dissociation between the electrical activity in your brain and the motor activity in your body if you are in complex partial or absence status. Mm. Um, and it's actually very, very mild. And it looks a lot like a hypoactive delirium. And after mm. this event, this is when I got really interested in non-convulsive status. And I now make about two or three diagnoses a year on the AMU because I do more EEGs. Do you ever do EEGs? So... What's interesting is I, I was um, a trainee and I just was in my first consultant job. I was working in um, a city centre um, in Birmingham and we had a service which allowed us to do EEGs on the ward in an acute medicine. And actually it was something that we did way more freely because we had the service there. So the service is there. Yes, I, I did them. But I think when you work in somewhere where they may not do EEGs or the service isn't as readily available, probably don't do them as much as we should. Sure. I, and, you know, when they do have EEGs, it maybe it's just for an outpatient. Are they willing? Absolutely. To so I was lucky. Yeah. I was in a central London teaching hospital where we had that service. But I have worked in many district general hospitals where you don't get an EEG. You can't get one. It's, it's not a, a facility that is offered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's really, yeah. really interesting. So I did a bit of reading about it. And what I found out was that I think that non-convulsive status epilepticus is a lot more common than we think it is and is probably more prevalent in our delirious patients than we mm. know. Um, mm. I found this US study in 2013 and they found 3% of patients presenting to the emergency department with altered mental status were actually fitting. They were having non-convulsive status. And there was a French study from 2010 and they did EEGs and they found and people over the age of 60 years old with prolonged delirium of unknown origin, 16, 1-6% of them were having ongoing status epilepticus. And I think that there is wow. a lot more seizures around than maybe we all realise if we just looked for them. Yeah. And it made me wonder, when do I use the EEG then? I mean, I say I have access to it, but it's, it's not easy to get. You have to persuade them to, to come up uh, and do it. And I looked at that. I found a paper in the Postgraduate Medical Journal, which suggested that we should be thinking about um, the diagnosis of non-convulsive status and doing an EEG, if available, on all patients over the age of 60 with a prolonged delirium of an unknown cause. Now, that makes me ask, how long is a prolonged delirium? Two days, two weeks? Six months. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, you've raised some very important points because I've certainly heard of a case before um, through one of my psychiatric colleagues who has diagnosed non-status epilepsy or ep um, non-convulsive status epilepticus in a patient with prolonged delirium. Yeah. And actually the treatment was using your anti-epileptic medication, your benzodiazepines, and the patient got rapidly in its questioning that acute confusional state and that delirium diagnosis and if it doesn't fit maybe it's because they don't have delirium yeah that's I mean, really don't have access to I, i've read enough of it now where they said listen if you don't have access to eeg and your suspicion is strong then your investigation of choice could be give them a benzodiazepine yes give them a milligram yeah. of the rad 
or if you don't want to do that because the patient already has a low GCS and you're nervous about making them more drowsy, load them with something like Keppra, 1.5 grams of intravenous levetiracetam and see if their delirium switches off. You will know if it happens. Mm. And I have said before that if it's three in the morning or a Saturday, or you're just in a place where you cannot get EEGs and you've got a patient who you think has got a non-clinical or subclinical status epilepticus, think about giving them a tiny dose of a benzo, just a milligram of lorazepam, IM or IV, or load them on a bit of Keppra as a one-off dose and then watching and looking and seeing. Worst case scenario is they're not actually fitting, but you shouldn't have done them really any harm from one-off dose yeah. of a benzo, one-off dose of a Keppra, if your mm -hmm. clinical suspicion is strong. But mm -hmm. You've got to have the clinical suspicion and it's difficult to actually develop that mm -hmm. if you've never seen a case before. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. something that everybody would feel confident in doing because how can you be so sure if you've never seen a case of non-clinical mm. status before i mean it may be that we have seen cases of non-convulsive status but we haven't thought about it and therefore we've made a misdiagnosis yeah um and it's changing because you know eeg is difficult it can be difficult to get a hold of so if you do think somebody does have non-convulsive status epilepticus and obviously it would be worth having a chat to the neurology team, your neurology colleagues in hospital to see what their thoughts are as well. Um, but certainly in an emergency setting with the race CK, which indicates persistent muscle movement and the repetitive lip smacking. Actually, I agree with you. I would be confident to try a small dose of a benzodiazepine or the Keppra to see if it makes any difference to the to the individual. I, I you know, I think in a well-controlled setting where you have resuscitation um, close by if needed, I think it's a very sensible thing to do. Yeah, and, and I think you'd be surprised or people would be surprised at how relatively common the condition is and how relatively often that treatment may well work um, I think you, you mean in terms of building up your clinical suspicion before you do this common things to look for are those tiny little automatisms those tiny repetitive mm. flickering of the muscles around the eyes the hand the lip smacking the plucking at clothes um, the abnormal tone in the muscles does the patient have a higher risk factor for developing non-convulsive status those risk factors are structural brain problems, uh, a previous stroke, for example, or, or a tumour, or a known diagnosis of epilepsy, if they normally do have seizures, uh, but obviously clinical seizures. Have they suddenly stopped a benzodiazepine they've been on long-term, or have they suddenly stopped an anti-epileptic they've been on for a long time? These mm -hmm. things are much, uh, they predispose you to having non-convulsive status. So I think if someone had a risk factor like that, and maybe I was concerned clinically that there were some very subtle motor activity ongoing and I didn't have access to an EEG I certainly would support that person administering something that might switch off seizures and then just watching and waiting and seeing what happens and in my case it was a very very remarkable and very sudden improvement in their clinical status once they got that medication. And with this gentleman were there any recognizable short-term sequelae or long-term sequelae of him being in status for three days? Not short term, the risk of remaining in status, you know, is not to be ignored. I think if you're in status epilepticus, your brain is on fire and you, you, you burn through cerebral glucose very quickly. You can get cerebral hypoxia and acidosis and ketone formation. And um, 
And obviously prolonged seizure activity, you can start getting a sclerosis of the brain as well, which, which causes a permanent scar and then increases your chance of having further seizures. So um, there are so many risks associated with it. For this guy, he was admitted to intensive care because a GCS of nine, I'm sorry, I'm not having him on my ward with, a, with an unsafe airway, but he was discharged from ICU with no apparent neurological impairment. But he did have a very, very prolonged post-ictal period and a very slow to resolve um, mm. cognitive impairment but he did go back to baseline and what are individuals who have had prolonged stage epilepticus at an increased risk of developing a primary epilepsy syndrome they may do they, they're more likely to develop seizures if they've developed um, structural damage for example mm. we know this this condition temporal mesial sclerosis it's a, a sclerotic material in the brain if you have lots and lots of seizures they're more at risk of developing seizures now moving forward especially if there's been structural brain change but that person now has a diagnosis of epilepsy so this should be a very um, strong consideration for starting long-term anti-epileptic treatments mm-hmm. uh, in a patient like this which by the way probably would drop his sodium even more because of mm. the side effects of those but mm. just in benefit balance but certainly they now have a label of epilepsy and should be treated as such even right. if it was non-convulsive gosh that's a very very interesting case and also raises some interesting points that you know we made the assumption that it was um, hyponatremia induced um, seizure activity which was correct but actually you know, to think about what is the cause of this delirium and that non-convulsive status epilepticus is a possible diagnosis that I forget now. Yeah, and I wouldn't say to everyone, consider this in every case of delirium you have, but I would just say if your delirium is not explained or not getting better, despite mm. you having treated the underlying cause, it's certainly something to think about. And as I say, since this case, I normally make uh, one or two diagnoses a year on the ward, much the amazement of everybody. So I think it's prevalent. It is prevalent. It, it is out there. So when you're making those diagnoses now, are you basing them on an EEG or are you using your dose of benzodiazepines to see whether they improve or not? For me, in my institution, it's based on an EEG. Okay. Because I have access to that. But mm. now knowing what I know, if I was in a different place, I would be relatively comfortable um, administering an anti-epileptic or a benzodiazepine if my clinical suspicion was strong. I think I picked up a nose for it now, having seen it a few times. <laughs> so so no. when, you, when you are thinking about it then at work at the moment, what in particular about that um, presentation in that individual is leading you to think this could be non-convulsive status? It's usually a case of this delirium is completely out of proportion from what I would expect. Right. For example, mm-hmm. this patient's too young. A 57-year-old mm-hmm. um, uh, man having a, such a profound delirium, you know, you don't see that very often. Or if the mm-hmm. cause of the delirium has been eliminated and they're still not better, or I cannot find the cause of the delirium. Another mm-hmm. one is if a patient comes in with a fit, an actual observable tonic-clonic seizure, and then they just don't get better. And that's when I think, right. oh, they switched from clinical seizures to subclinical or non-clinical seizures. Are they still fitting, but just secretly mm. on the inside? So a very, very prolonged postictal phase lasting for more than 12 hours. I've picked up a couple of cases that way because they've actually, yeah. they're still having seizures, but now they flip from clinical to non-clinical seizures. Fascinating. 
yeah that's really really interesting thank you so much for bringing that case and sharing it with us today it's You're definitely welcome. some learning points yes what one thing do you want our listeners to take away from your case today i think if you've got an unexplained delirium go and stare at the patient stare them in yeah. the eye look for those tiny little subtle motor signs, motor flickering signs around the eye, around the hand, those sort of semi-purposeful repetitive hand motions. These are your, your warnings. These are your, your uh, trigger signs for reaching for the phone for getting an EEG or for administering your medication. If you can't explain okay. the delirium, really, really scrutinize the patient and look for these little warning signs. So it goes back to basics, doesn't it? It goes back to beginner history and examination. Yeah. And really looking at your patient on the end of the bed. And like you say, looking for those subtleties of seizure activity, the eye movements, the lip smacking yeah. and the hand movements as well. Absolutely. That you may not see on a cursory glance. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that case with us today, Ben. Um, it has been fantastic to have you on the podcast and I'm sure that everybody who's been listening has been has been able to take away some learning points from that today. Um, thank you to everybody for joining us today. If you would like to get in touch, you can drop me an email at amy at efimacademy.org or you can tweet me at Amy Burbridge. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organisation in internal medicine. Thanks for listening.